horses prefer gingers. And that is a scientific fact. People without access to bridges cannot jump from them. And that is a scientific fact. Semen cured my hepatitis. And that is a scientific fact. Um, did, uh, did someone say semen cured my hepatitis? Well, um, I believe that is my cue. Hello, everyone. My name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Materialistic people are ungrateful, and thus sad, and that is a scientific fact. Two slices of bread are quite literally the only things separating us from chimpanzees, and that is a scientific fact. You know, I had a hunch that if I googled the words scientific fact, the results would be, well. Dilbert is the best cartoon strip in the world and that is a scientific fact. I would still be a virgin if it wasn't for The Apprentice. That is scientific fact. Yes, it, it, it seems that the phrase scientific fact is pretty much exclusively used when announcing something with absolutely no empirical scientific proof whatsoever. Great white sharks love heavy metal and that is a scientific fact. To use a um, piece of terminology from poker, you could call those words a tell. If you notice them in an argument, their presence should immediately reveal to you that your opponent is actually holding fuck all it, it, it's it's a bluff move usually an aggressive bluff at that anytime that someone tries to use science as a way to establish an unimpeachable truth uh, that person is being about as unscientific as you can possibly be should you find yourself in that situation i'd say i'd say that this particular round of poker just probably isn't worth playing. I am not racist. And that is a scientific fact. Well, uh, that's not how you spell racist. And you're not really using the word science correctly here, Karen. Or the word fact, for that matter. Here's the problem, Karen. There are no scientific facts like that is a contradiction in terms scientists don't talk about facts science has observations and uses those observations to construct theories uh, there might be several competing theories all trying to make sense of these observations a dominant theory might get accepted and legitimized by the scientific community but even so like that accepted theory is going to be endlessly tested, revised, disconfirmed as more and more scientific observations are made. All, all, all I'm saying, Karen, is that 
we're really going to have to keep testing you on this whole I'm not racist thing. Your theory, and you know, it is a theory, is controversial, implausible, some might say. Nevertheless, it is a theory. So show us your research. If it's good, we'll publish your theory in the International Journal of Scientific Racism, IJSR, and... You know, we'll we'll see whether the scientific racist community backs it up. Should it gather a consensus, then your theory might find itself used as a building block in some other study. And that's really the best case scenario here. But you see, Karen, like your theory about how fundamentally unracist you are, that theory, even if established, will never, ever be taken as an indisputable truth in fact we're gonna have to keep testing you every single day and every single night of your life just to keep your theory in the mix i'm sorry but what could i say declaring a truth any truth is is next to impossible even when talking about something that you feel absolutely in your bones to be true you still cannot legitimately call it a fact no 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 yeah exactly exactly that's what i'm saying like there, there are no facts no no scientifically speaking there are no facts there are no assumed truths oh hang on like, i think the problem is that like, like, i think the internet has accidentally created a kind of new age of aggressive certainty like it pretends to be scientific but it, it's the opposite I'm, I'm just saying that we should all be more like scientists <laughs> what are you saying karen <laughs> well, that's because i am a pedant <laughs> yeah well i admitted it didn't i i admitted it well yeah yeah i i just think the world needs a bit of pedantry right now no 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 i'm not i'm not trying to open the door for climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers well that's because there are theories on both sides karen i mean i happen to agree with the consensus theory in both cases i mean like the the, the, the massively agreed upon theory but at the same time like i'm not gonna say oh climate change is a scientific fact because well let me finish i won't say climate change is a scientific fact because that's a that's a dogmatic way of presenting the argument saying blah blah is a scientific fact means that i can make claims without really understanding them and i want to set an example by well yes the term post-truth does get thrown around a lot karen you're right people like to sneer at it but you know it was inevitable that unhierarchical digital information would reach it density where um you know the internet it has left us with way too many observations and way too many theories and without a simple means to discover the consensus and and that's why each of us as individuals needs to take more responsibility for the things we hold to be true and that means exposing our beliefs to the, the scientific methods does that i mean does that make sense you want me to do what with my what? No, it isn't censorship. It, it, it isn't censorship. You're the one trying to. No, no, no. You're like Hitler. No, no, no. You're you're like Hitler. 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 Well, I'm just gonna fucking block you, Karen. You racist dick. How'd you like that, eh? Anyway, you see, science is supposed 
to be there to protect us from dogma, isn't it? You know, it, it, its purpose is to intentionally unpick the things that we hold as self-evident and, and question why it's it's tireless and cyclical and incredibly long-winded but it's it's vital it's it's absolutely vital even even if we're talking about a theory that is pretty much universally acknowledged as true like i don't know like the earth being round i still feel an important need to engage with the debate and explain to cynics why the theory that i subscribe to is universally acknowledged i'm not doing this to pander crazy people i'm just trying to lead by example i'm trying to demonstrate that theories arrive from a process and no matter which side of the argument we find ourselves on i don't think we can use capital t truth as a way to steamroll arguments if i laid down the law tried to strong arm people into sense by talking about scientific facts the problem is i just start to sound a bit like these people there are sasquatch less than a hundred miles from my house and that is a scientific fact a man with impressive muscles assisting a small child equals maximum hotness and that is a scientific fact i fucking sold you the most beautiful car in the world and that is fucking scientific fact now of course i'm handpicking the uh the most entertaining entries from my browser but sadly for every pseudoscientist claiming that guinea fowl are more intelligent than humans there are pages and pages of angry discussions on evolution abortion transgender identity and and look even putting uh, my own views to to one side here look, the, the, the underlying shame is that as long as both sides of a debate both believe that they are supporting irrefutable truths neither side is ever going to convince the other of their argument it's a tug of war between two lampposts and you know the outcome well, yeah, well you know, as you'd expect nothing a really crap tug of war but what can we do eh we're passionate we have very strong opinions and only 140 characters to express them if only there was some way to express ourselves in more for the 140 characters. That way we could back up our opinions with evidence, but there isn't. There isn't, is there? We've only got 140 characters. And that's it, so what can we do but use those 140 characters to endlessly call each other liars and idiots as the whole country burns around us? Scientific fact. If you buy avocados, you are supporting slavery. Well, maybe I'm not being fair to people. You know, or maybe people do try to argue with nuance perhaps people do try to explain their opinions with reason and sensitivity but but i admit like it's hard to navigate these arguments when there's just so much bad science out there there's so many wacky theories and partisan trials and uh, very very little access to legitimate scientific journals to back up our opinions we're left drowning and conspiracy theories and we can see people drifting away from consensus opinion towards new paranoid hateful theories manipulated into radical dangerous worldviews never before have we been so desperately in need of scientific facts tell us what's true the the, the phrase scientific fact and uh, the legitimacy it brings like oh we need that so badly and yet here i am 
arguing against it. The Earth is round. That's scientific fact. The Earth is hollow. That's scientific fact. And all the Neanderthals have been living there since 1000 BC. So, like, how can we rebuild scientific consensus in the digital age without shouting about facts? Well, I think storytelling can help. Like turning a scientific theory into a story helps expand it out of soundbite form. Telling the story of how a scientific discovery came about allows scientists to show they're working. It narrativizes discovery. And I think this makes theories more compelling. I mean, this is not an original thought, by no means. It was first proposed, I think, by... Jean-Francois Lyotard in his 1979 book The Postmodern Condition, uh, a book I read as a student, well, sort of read. Lyotard saw the information boom on the horizon and he predicted that we would have to start talking about science in terms of narrative. Not one big story, but lots of little stories, all going in different directions, even contradicting and undermining each other. But that didn't matter because narrative conventions allowed for multiple perspectives. We can cope with contradictory evidence in stories. We were trained to handle those kind of ambiguities in stories. We understand that over time, those wrinkles kind of iron themselves out. The fact that new theories arriving from quantum physics undermine a lot of existing theories of physics doesn't mean that everything is utterly wrong and we need to go back and start again. It just means that these theories are works in progress. The book is still being written. So don't throw it at the wall. Not yet. We need to see where these various narrative threads are heading. But the key, Leotard says, is just to make these stories compelling. Now, of course, if you're a modern journalist reporting on science, then you know you know this all too well. Your podcast fans, I mean, you almost certainly listen to Radiolab. Uh, Robert Krulwich says this way better than I ever could. When a cousin or an uncle or a buddy comes up and asks you, so what are you working on? Even if it's hard to explain, even if you know they don't really want to hear it, not really, I urge you to give it a try because... Talking about science, telling stories to regular folks is not a trivial thing. Scientists need to tell stories to non-scientists because science stories, and you know this, have to compete with other stories about how the universe works and how the universe came to be. And some of those other stories, Bible stories, movie stories, myths, can be very beautiful and very compelling. But to protect science and scientists, this is not a gentle competition. So you've got to get in there and tell yours, your version of how things are and why things came to be. Why is creationism slipping back into education? Well, in part, it's because the story of Genesis is a fucking great story. And, and that's why scientists have got to get better at telling their own stories. It's not enough to be empirically sound on, like, on some level. It's also, it's got a pop. And as science gets harder, the metaphor becomes more useful and even necessary. It's my sense that if more scientists wanted to, they could learn how to tell their stories with words and pictures and metaphor, and people will hear and remember those stories and not be as willing to accept the other folks' stories. Or at least there'll be a tug of war. 
And I think that the science stories too will surprisingly win. Some of you sitting here, probably here, who say, you can't talk about nature that way. It distorts what's true. What's true is what you see in equations, in the math that points to these laws. But I go back to my man Galileo, who was maybe the first, in Western tradition anyway, to honor mathematics as the primal force of knowledge. The logic of the universe, he said in his book, The Assayer, is written in the language of mathematics without which one is wandering around in a dark labyrinth. But having honored math, Galileo was very happy to create beautiful metaphors, to invent marvelous characters, to draw pictures. He knew how to light that labyrinth so the rest of us could see inside. Because the more abstract and mathematical science gets, the more we need to imagine something concrete. As the physicist Alan Lightman has said, we are blind people inventing what we don't see. But of course, of course, like turning science into stories does not solve all our problems. It might, it might unpack the scientific process and debunk the public's misguided notion of absolute scientific certainty, but telling stories, particularly telling true stories, comes with its own collection of ethical pit traps. Something I know myself all too well from working on this podcast. A story is an easy thing to twist, and storytellers are often guilty of juicing up the truth for dramatic effect. As I said, stories are seductive. Therefore, the writers of scientific journalism have a responsibility to make sure those stories don't accidentally boulderize the research or invent melodrama to connect dots that don't feel cogently connected. And that's so, so easy to do. Stories, they can feel as if they've got a life of their own. Even when approaching something with journalistic rigor, emotion creeps in through the back door. And sometimes the science inside it gets compromised. So, with that in mind, uh, on this week's episode of Imaginary Advice, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to take a couple of pieces of scientific journalism and completely ruin them with pointless artistic pretensions. I'm, I'm going to step on the landmine myself just to just to illustrate how easy it is to do so you will learn nothing um that is my promise to you dear listener best case scenario you leave this podcast with slightly more respect for uh, good scientific journalism and uh, i don't know maybe a slightly keener intuition for bullshit Scientific fact. Disease is caused by negative energy. Your ill health is caused by your negative attitude. That last one there, courtesy of Noel Edmonds, friend of the show. But don't listen to Noel. Don't listen to anyone who uses the phrase scientific fact, especially not someone who has their face on multiple fruit machines. No, if you want to listen to good, solid scientific research, if you want to learn something about our place in the universe, you need a celebrity with some actual bona fide scientific credentials. Here's a clip from physicist Brian Cox on his BBC science show, Wonders of the Universe. 
Well, I'm just going to stop that clip before... <laughs> I'm just going to stop that clip before Brian even speaks because you really need to know... I realise now, you really need to know where Brian is in order to get the full effect of the clip. So we're joining Brian, celebrity physicist Brian Cox, walking in slow motion along the roof of an abandoned prison in Rio de Janeiro. The camera zooms out to reveal the uh, sepia favelas beyond. Brian, in black t-shirt and dusty blue jeans, climbs down a ladder, entering the prison. The building is completely gutted, it's just a shell, nothing but room after room of rubble and mysterious broken machines, walls scarred by their own decay. Brian turns to the camera. Imagine this old prison in Rio is a, a dying star like Beetlejuice. Just to recap, the BBC has sent Professor Brian Cox to Rio de Janeiro to transform an abandoned prison into a giant metaphor for star death. Down there is the bright surface shining off into space. As I descend deeper and deeper into the prison, the conditions would become hotter and hotter and denser and denser until down there in the heart of the star is the core and it's in there that all the ingredients of life are made. Gonna pause it again here. What just happened? Well, Brian invited us to look down a lift shaft, down into the heart of the prison, down into the cell blocks where thousands upon thousands of men would have been held and, and looking down that lift shaft, you can feel it. This incredibly dense compression of time. All those nights crying into blankets, the nights punching walls and months nursing broken knuckles, generation upon generation of abuse and bloodshed and murder and regret the endless regret that haunts this place, you can feel it, and it's corrosive. Of course it is. The prison growing weaker and weaker. It's, it's fighting to still be a prison, struggling to hold its shape. And then just as Brian says... Deep in its core, the star is fighting a futile battle against its own gravity. The image cuts to an exploding star. Boom! <laughs> okay, full disclosure, when I first watched this, I was on a course of steroids for my asthma and I'd been drinking all day, so I was extremely high. Uh, I, I was sat at a bar in Exeter, um, rambling to some guy about how science needs to get better at telling stories, when the barman just handed me his phone with this video clip already loaded onto it. And uh, I just, I, I just lost my fucking mind. This is great, I thought. I mean, you're not experiencing the piece the same way that I was, but I hope you can still feel the excitement, huh? Like he's turned, he's turned a dying star into a failing prison. He's given us a story. So 
Brian begins to talk about how a dying star loses its gravitational shape in stages. And as he talks, he's heading down into the center of the prison. Now, Brian is his, his usual cheery self. He always sounds as if he's enthusiastically describing a nice dessert that he's just finished. But that's not necessarily how I feel inside. That's not how it's affecting me. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm completely locked into the story here, almost overwhelmed by it. And uh, as Brian heads deeper and deeper into the prison, I can feel the midday heat. Brian pushing his way through the densely compressed ghosts of prisoners, millions of tightly packed stories so sad and endless that their collective misery is literally turning the prison to rubble. But Brian continues. And he's looking down the barrel of the camera and he's continuing to talk about physics. But the problem is, is that images, they speak louder than words. And soon, I can't really hear Brian. All I can really think about is the, this prison, like now in its final years, no longer capable of continuing its function, terrible conditions, the wards stinking of waste, inmates disappearing every day. Like, yes, the prison is dying. It's trying to hold its shape. It's trying to still be a prison, but it's... It's weak. The residents, they've pushed their fingers into every crack and crevice. Each new generation continues the work of the previous, always pushing, always scratching. Time, after all, is all these men have. And down here, they've slowly turned it into a weapon. And as the prison grows weaker, the inmates gain strength. They're digging their way through the powdery concrete, rioting in the mess hall. Every last drop of energy that the warden can muster is burned away. This prison is a furnace and it will not cool until there is nothing left to burn. Whilst the stars burn in hydrogen to helium in the core, vast amounts of energy are released and that energy escapes literally creating an outward pressure which balances the force of gravity and well it holds the star up and keeps it stable but eventually the hydrogen in the core will run out and at that point the fusion reactions will stop no more energy will be released and that outward pressure will disappear now, at that point, the core will start to collapse very rapidly, leaving a shell of hydrogen and helium. Brian explains that during star death, gravity crushes the star smaller and smaller, causing new fusion reactions to occur. And this, in turn, creates new chemical elements. Brian spray paints the names of these elements onto the walls of the prison. The chemical symbol for helium, hydrogen, carbon, magnesium, neon, and so on. And uh, I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, no, no, this works. This tracks um, because these are, essentially these are the gang signs 
of the prisoners. That's what he's doing here. The prison itself is is slowly collapsing into chaos, right? And and every time the prison's integrity is breached, the prisoners gain more and more control. Once they were separated in their cells, now they're mixing together. They form new brotherhoods. Initiation rituals are conducted. Deep in the bowels of the crumbling prison, the carbon gang is formed. Gang colours proudly on display. They walk the prison halls, rock solid. The carbon gang, now so much stronger than they were as individuals. Now that they're a unit, they are beyond the remit of the prison. Like, who's going to stop them? Who's going to put them back in their cell? Who's going to stop them from breaking out when the time's right? And with each new gang takeover, the prison shrinks further. Resources are compromised, budget slashed, the remaining prisoners are rooted into new cells, three to a cell, four to a cell. It's only a matter of time before the oxygen gang makes their reputation known. Followed by uh, the sodium mob, neon boys, uh, magnesium clan, and the uh, the aluminium crime family. In its millions of years of life, the star has made all the common elements the stuff that makes up 99% of the Earth. The core is now a solid ball of those elements, stacked on top of each other in layers. On the outside, there's a shell of hydrogen. Beneath it, a layer of helium. Then carbon and oxygen, and all the other elements, all the way down to the very heart of the star. And once that has fused into solid iron, the star has only seconds left to live. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, so this this is a bit of a surprising development, at least from the point of view of, of, of the prison narrative, which, let's be honest, is is the one I'm primarily interested in. When it comes to the end of the prison, rather than the prison just getting shut down and the inmates relocated to a new facility. What happens is the entire prison gets converted into a kind of gang clubhouse. And even the guards get drafted into the various gangs, given face tattoos, nicknames, etc. I mean, that's a little surprising, isn't it? I, 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 I didn't realise that that was what happens when a prison gets decommissioned, but... But I like it. When a star runs out of fuel, then it can no longer release energy through fusion reactions. At this point, every bit of energy that could have been used to keep this place a prison has been used up. And at that point, there's only one thing that can happen. There's only one thing that can happen. Disperse back into the community. All the gangs, they've got no need to stay there anymore. They've converted all the guards, so they disperse. They scatter themselves to the wind. So now how is Brian going to illustrate this part? Well, how else could this end? We, uh, we see Brian now walking away from the prison in slow motion. 
In about the same amount of time it takes this prison block to crumble, the entire star falls in on itself. The, the prison implodes behind him. <laughs> yeah. Guys, yeah, see what an ending. See, he does, like Brian doesn't even look back. Of course he doesn't look back. He's cool, isn't he? Also, he doesn't have to check. He knows exactly what happens when a star dies. It just falls apart. The exact same thing that happens to an old prison when that dies. It just falls apart. And all the criminals just scatter to the wind. So long, Oxygen Gang. Ciao, Carbon Gang, you bad motherfuckers. Something tells me we haven't heard the last from you bastards. And sure enough, these various crime syndicates go on to form the foundation of all life on planet Earth. Everything, everything that we know from microwaves to Jeff Goldblum to jackets, all of it, all of it, including you and me, every atom in our body came at one point from the Brazilian criminal underworld. If you if you trace back our heritage, it all started in the depths of a prison in Rio de Janeiro. All of us, all of us. We all we all started there. It all started for us in um in an abject misery, crushed by our own confinement, tortured by the weight of time. But when there was no more energy left to hold us, we made bonds, we formed gangs with cool names, we came together and we let everyone join. We consumed everyone, including those that had tortured us, until the prison was just another shitty building. And then we left, blessed with the gifts to go out into the world and make anything that we wanted. And I think the most interesting thing that I take from this in the end is, is this is the only thing that I think is important and, that, and that's the, our escape from prison. It was not a fluke. It was, and still is, part of the never ending cycle of life in the universe. So the next time that you hear about a prison break in your area, just, just, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it, guys. It, you know, it's just, it's just another beautiful metaphor for star death. It's just, it's a homage to our humble biomolecular origin story. Now, shortly after seeing that clip from Wonders of the Universe, I thought I could do that. So if the BBC is still paying people to destroy large, elaborate metaphors in Rio de Janeiro, then 
you know, I, I, I feel like I've got a good pitch or two inside me. I could flood a children's hospital or uh, I could rob a shopping centre. I've got loads of ideas. So I, I wrote a poem for the BBC pitching a follow-up episode. And uh, it goes like this. Next season, Brian Cox goes back to Sao Paulo to smash up a nice family-owned restaurant. Everything Brian attacks becomes a metaphor for the universe, the air shimmering with broken glass. Brian shatters the owner's hand against the bar. Heat death paradox written on his baseball bat. Brian walks backwards, talking to the camera, explaining the time asymmetry of entropy, stuffing his pockets with notes from the till. Physics! He shouts, launching a chair at a waiter. In the back room, eating beef and onions, a police officer. Well respected in his community, he represents the second law of thermodynamics. Brian kills him. Camera cuts to a CGI rendition of the Big Bang, returns to find Brian four years later now living in a cramped police safe house in Luz. The end of his index finger is missing. It appears Brian Cox has betrayed many people. His tongue swollen, Brian talks to camera about irreversible transformations. Outside, a car bomb detonates. Whatever metaphor the explosion was supposed to represent, Brian has long forgotten. A quote from Einstein, the galactic redshift, a glue-on, the Copernican principle, the negative heat capacity of a black hole. Zoom in on Brian's terrified face as he tries to remember how the universe began. A man enters the safe house and shoots him. I thought I understood, but I don't, says Brian. Dies. Cut to his funeral. Brian's family embarrassed, talking to camera. Where did things go wrong? Perhaps something right at the start, before the music career, before astrophysics, some deleted scene, an unlit, corrupted file. Various BBC execs approach the molecules once known as Brian Cox, leave their apologies, tiny gifts of rock and ice then walk home, wondering if the metaphor has ended. The rain on their hats, like the sound of a Wikipedia page, being frantically rewritten.
when you're dead you're dead. And that is scientific fact. Everything is scarier at night. And that is scientific fact. Shrek is not real. Because ogres are extinct. And that is a scientific fact. So I've just been looking back online just now and it's the same as before. It's just like no one's been listening to this podcast that I haven't uploaded yet. It's just it's just depressing. You know, we, we have to get better at this. But even as Professor Brian Cox probably knows, even when you take a scientific theory and tell it as a compelling story or you make it into a really nice metaphor, there's still nothing stopping some dickhead from intentionally getting a hold of the wrong end of it. So let's finish today by reversing the angle. Uh, instead of turning science into stories, let's take a story and turn it into science. Um, I've got a story, a true story about a dinner date I went on. And uh, it's a messy, ambiguous story that I just, I feel it desperately needs some kind of scientific control. So uh, I've tried to reimagine the dinner using the structure of a classic school science experiment. So I've split the date into hypothesis, apparatus, diagram, method, results and conclusion. And uh, that way I can, uh, I can ask myself, you know, was it actually love I felt that night? I mean, if this was just a poem, I could say yes or no, but this is not just a poem. This is also a science experiment. No absolute truths here. We're going to have to try and be a bit more rigorous than that. Experiment to determine the existence of love, part one, hypothesis. I suggest were we to collide, our compounds would bond like dogs in a ball pool. Then, once we cut away the control, love would be evident. For I strongly believe our diagnostics hide this volatile, stupefying element. Part 2 Apparatus Let us take a moon Hung low with commentary Add our last reserves of serotonin Tan lines Mouthwash Charlie Parker Candle wax A bus pass The humber A few funny JPEGs the way she lifts her leg into the waiting car. Two winters, a faded poster of Lakshmi, a walk-on cast of thousands, and a minimum of two strong drinks. But the goggles are optional, my sweetness. Part three. Diagram. The first draft is easy, public toilet stuff. Arrows aimed at the obvious organs, 
a quick sketch of the soul that would make good John Venn blush. Yet remember, this is not to scale. Soon we add functions, direction of data, the flowcharts stack up like decommissioned fridges. The spaghetti programming of the heart. The angle of my gestures erased and redrawn so many times over that I look like I'm shaking. Lines drawn from my eyes to the window so many times but it has to mean something. All wireframe and end on. No mood lights, no shading. You look like a toddler's drawing of grimace. I look like a crime sketch of Ian Beale whistling. Our tipex skin dripping from table to floor. Part four, method. We begin with the control data. Tick box stimuli we know we can trust. Food is discussed and the state of the pavements. Attempts are made to touch backs of hands. Jazz is activated. By 2200 hours, advanced testing. Mistrust of certain fonts, vague political discomforts, immediately repeated at greater volume. Improvised plans to leave the country, debate on Elton John, debate on Elton John lyrics, segue into suicide fantasies, quick deployment of childhood TV conversation, followed by emergency house clearing. Every 20 minutes, I visit the bathroom and take a reading. Part five, results. The night resembles a parabola curve. Curiosity rising with the humidity. And when the thick blood red line surfaces like an insane contaminated salmon, it survives 10 minutes, barely before floating back down below the zero. Part six, conclusion. A predominantly unsuccessful experiment compared to solo results in the lab. Prior research proved inadequate alcohol safeguards were critically missing. Lack of reaction can most probably be attributed to persistent mispronunciation of jalapeno, compounded by the glass eye of an unconvincing waiter who pushed us beyond the expected anxiety buffer zone. Without doubt, the experiment works in theory simply failing in transition from page to appliance. Thus, we conclude, for now at least, not a great day for love, but not a bad day for science.
David. You are frigging gorgeous. And that's a scientific fact. Scientific fact. My hands shake. Whenever you are not around. I love you. And I always will. That's not just how I feel. It's science. Well, that's all from Imaginary Advice this month. Uh, I hope you liked it. If you did, then you might also enjoy episode 28, uh, which is called If Hitler. I'd say that uh, this episode is kind of like a sister episode to that one. Uh, both deal with language conflicts in the internet age with a bit of my own poetry looped around it uh, i've done some other essay episodes too you could check out episode 25 hug freddy which is an episode about fear real and imagined or episode 24 repeat after me which is an essay on love and repetition hey it's uh it's the british podcast awards really soon um if you'd like to vote for imaginary advice for the listener choice awards uh you you can do that it is it is it is possible for you to do that if you wanted to to do it uh, you can go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and uh, you can look me up on the system that they've got set up there. I did notice that you have to put a space after imaginary advice or the show doesn't come up for some reason. But um, if you did that for me, uh, then yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. Uh, also, give me a five-star review on iTunes really helps. Thank you so much for all the reviews on iTunes that have come through recently. Um, they really made me smile. Uh, also, if, if you'd like to financially support the podcast, uh, you can do so through Patreon. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who does that. We've had some more people signing up recently. Um, that's really, really amazing. And you, you literally make this thing possible. And it is the thing that makes me happiest in the world. So I have to thank you for that. If you'd like to support me that way, uh, there's various perks. Depending on how much you uh, subscribe, you get extra bonus episodes and stuff like that. Um, I'll put a link to my Patreon page in the liner notes of this episode um, I'll be back with another episode soon go to imaginaryadvice.com for more information on the podcast uh, I love you and I worry about you just just take care of yourself for Christ's sake okay um, bye bye